This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we've heard lots of inspiration and uh, wonderful uh, comments from uh, leadership. Um, now we get to um, the... I was going to say the meat of the program, but we're not allowed to say that. And it doesn't sound right to say the tofu of the program, right? So, uh, but this is, this is where we get into the, the real question of uh, what are we going to do? What does the science tell us? What are some of the options for uh, solutions? And uh, to do so, we are going to hear from a series of uh, speakers, all of whom are... Uh, contributing to the report as well, which you will hear again tomorrow morning from uh, Ram uh, in terms of his summary. And to begin, we have first uh, Bill Collins, um, who is a uh, well-esteemed, very esteemed climate scientist uh, at uh, UC Berkeley, but also at uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And uh, Bill is going to talk to us about pathways for bending the curve. Good morning. Uh, I'm representing chapter one of our report. I must say, before I start, that it's a real honor to be back here. I launched my career at Scripps in the early 1990s. Ram didn't mention that it was under his careful tutelage that I had learned climate science. I started uh, working on climate after studying the universe, and I thought it would be good to come closer to home and bring my energies closer to home. And Ram helped me do that. So thank you very much. Ram, for your instruction. And now fast forward uh, 25 years later, and here I'm back again. We're going to be looking at a chapter of this report that deals with three issues. And I'm sorry to say I have to start with a somewhat sobering assessment of the state of the climate. Before I do that, I want to mention to you that I, I am an optimist, and an optimist because I know we can bend the curve and because of the energy of the people in this room. But we have to start off with th- sort of a a quick tour of what's happening, then talk about the urgency of bending the curve, and then finally some options that we discussed in our chapter, which actually focus a lot on short-lived climate pollutants. 2015 is on pace to be the warmest year uh, in modern uh, thermometric uh, records of the climate system. So records that go back 135 years established 2015 as possibly being the warmest year. 2014 was certainly the warmest year. Nine of the ten warmest years have occurred in this century. And since Ron was appealing to those in the gallery, I have to do so as well. None of you have lived, I'm sorry to say, in what would be regarded as as historically normal climate. Everyone we teach in our classes has now been born in a different world from the one that many of their professors grew up in. And this is one of the major challenges that we face. Now, if we could run the movie, thank you. California snowpack has fallen dramatically over the last five years. 2015 was the record low in recent uh, memory and in recent records. Now, some of this may not be directly attributable to global warming, but it is certainly a foretaste of what will happen, and I'll come back to this point a little bit later in my talk, uh, as thermodynamics rules, uh, rainfall, and snowpack, 
and converts more of that snow to rain later in the century. But the, the fact that we have such low snowpack this year, and in fact, we've had several years where many of our historically snow-capped mountains have been bare from snow, as seen from space, is really a reflection of how much our climate has changed and what we have to look forward to. Drought is extreme to exceptional over most of California, and the, uh, this is reflected in very low water levels in many of our critical reservoirs, 30%, and many of them across the state. This picture that you see on the left is the drought monitor uh, that I just downloaded last week from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and it shows that most of the state is, is really in an exceptional drought condition. Now, again, I don't want to necessarily attribute this to climate change, but it is a harbinger of how much changes to our water cycle can affect our daily lives. It's also a good chance to point out that the state has risen dramatically to the challenge posed to it by Governor Brown. He asked us to cut our our water consumption by 25%. We uh, met or exceeded that goal across much much of the state. Uh, And this has been a real testament to the ability of Californians to act in concert when the need arises. And I think it's a very good prelude for the kind of challenges that we heard about this morning and that we'll be facing in the near future. So that's kind of a quick tour, and that was very California-centric. I recognize impacts are happening all over the world. Let's focus then on on California's contribution to global warming. As people have already pointed out, it's relatively small. It's 1%. We actually are slightly more carbon-intensive than the world, about 85%, 84% of our energy comes from, uh, and uh, and our emissions are associated with carbon dioxide. That's about 75% globally. Uh, The um, challenge for us is that we're living as part of that global system where, as Ron mentioned, global emissions are increasing at 2% a year. And so it's very critical for us, even though we're a small part of that, to act as a very big uh, fulcrum arm on bending those emissions to the point where they go to zero and then go negative. We also heard from Helena that another major contributor to global warming are short-lived climate pollutants. Short-lived here means, as she mentioned, all the way from days for black carbon to weeks for ozone to about a a decade for methane. This diagram on the left is from a a paper by uh, Ram uh, and colleagues that shows the relative contributions of carbon dioxide, black carbon, and then a mix of other greenhouse gases to global warming. And you can see that black carbon actually is a a pretty big contributor. The, The size of the circles is their relative contribution to radiative forcing. So that means that these short-lived climate pollutants are very important actors in warming the climate. And that's also evidenced by the fact that their global warming potential, uh, this is the figure on the right, which is a measure of how much they contribute to forcing, is comparable to that of carbon dioxide on timescales of one to two decades. The good news is that because they have a short lifetime, once you begin to ameliorate their emissions, you can rapidly extract them from the Earth's atmosphere. And we'll come back to why this is such a good idea a little bit later uh, in this presentation. So now, I'm I'm sorry, I have to come back to a slightly sobering part of the talk, which deals with what happens if we don't bend the curve. And I'd like to think of this sort of in the context of Dickens' Christmas Carol, that um, we'll all wise up if we see what the future could look like. 
And I, this, this future that I'm presenting is one that is slightly, actually slightly more optimistic than business as usual, but it's still pretty sobering. So these are figures taken from a couple of different sources. One of them is California on the right, shows heat, uh, the number of heat waves, the frequency of them in Oakland, uh, close to where I live. And the diagram on the left is the mean temperature for California at the year 2100. California temperatures can increase by five to six degrees Celsius, which is completely historically unprecedented. And as a consequence, it could trigger much more frequent heat waves, uh, increased by a factor of 15. Now, we've been talking a lot about um, impacts on sort of the physical climate system, but heat waves are actually quite dangerous from a health perspective. And they pose a major risk to uh, both the human population and also to the, the, uh, to the animals and uh, plants living in our natural surroundings. It's very critical that we avoid this type of impact uh, by bending the curve. One of the other impacts that higher temperatures have on ecosystems is that they shorten winters. Now, this might sound good if you're a farmer, but it has it had a completely drastic impact on our forests by enabling beetles and other pests to have much longer breeding seasons. Uh, Ram and I both uh, worked during part of our career in Boulder, Colorado. The forests west of Boulder now have two uh, complete life cycles of beetles in the trees every year, not one, two, thanks to the longer growing season, and that has decimated the forests across much of the American Southwest. So it's, this, has, uh, this longer growing season definitely is a double-edged sword. We're not sure what's going to happen with rainfall in California. The storm tracks will definitely move north. That will make Canada wetter. It will make Mexico drier. Uh, but at the moment, our climate models are still not able to reliably predict what's going to happen uh, in California. In fact, we still are not sure whether the, the, the signal is statistically significant at timescales of a century. And that's, that's the white regions that you see in these diagrams. It's basically where the, the models are giving us a coin toss as to what's going to happen. But the models are quite sure that thanks to the fact that snow melts when you heat it and you stick it in a warmer climate, warmer by five or six degrees Celsius, we're going to see dramatically lower snowpack by the end of the century. And it could decline by as much as 80%. That's going to cause stream flow in our rivers, on which we vitally depend, to start to plunge by the year 2050, perhaps by 25% or more. In some other river basins, the signal is much larger. And agriculture, which uses 70% of the water in the state of California, or 80%, depending on who you, uh, whose economy you believe, could be one of the most dramatically affected sectors, uh, thanks to this dramatically reduced uh, snowpack and water availability. We should also mention sea level rise. And this is an issue which has both a, an impact, an economic impact, but also a major climate equity impact because of settlement patterns, particularly in the ones I'm familiar with are in the Bay Area. If you look at what would happen if sea level rose by one and a half meters, which is sort of between the, the consensus and the upper bound of estimates coming out of the IPCC report, and is consistent with other estimates that have been published since, and couple that with a major storm, and just look at the Bay Area, not to be parochial, but this is where I live, you take out 1,300 miles of roads in the, in the Bay Area, thanks to a storm like that. Uh, both airports would be taken down temporarily, flooded. Uh, that would exceed the, the seawall around the San Francisco airport. Um, it would uh, impact a large number of people. Damages statewide could run into the tens of billions of dollars. 
And the climate equity issue here is that many of the poorest people who live, uh, of the seven million who live in the Bay Area, live down close to sea level, for example, uh, just immediately east of the Port of Oakland. And they are ground zero for the impacts of dramatically increased sea level rise. So this is an, an issue that's important for all sectors of society. So let's now talk about the prospects for bending the curve. Uh, this, this curve, it doesn't look actually much like a curve, it's a very straight line. It uh, comes out of the summary for policymakers for the uh, last IPCC report, the fifth assessment, and it shows the relationship between cumulative carbon emissions and, uh, on the horizontal axis and temperature on the vertical. And you can see that we're just walking this straight path to a dramatically uh, different climate. Uh, there's historical data on here. There are climate projections. They all point to a future where we really do not want to go. Um, the challenge for us in bending this curve is that about half the carbon that's been emitted since the start of industrialization, this, the invention of the steam engine in 1780, has been emitted in roughly the last half century. So we have a, a lot of work to do to uh, begin altering this curve. Uh, and, but we must, because the carbon commitment and the commitment of the uh, chlorofluorocarbons that Rama alluded to earlier will last for centuries to millennia. So it's time to get started. And the good news is that, uh, as Elena mentioned, there are some pathways that allow us to rapidly get some traction on this problem while we sort out the carbon issue. The carbon issue is particularly tricky because it's so deeply embedded in our energy systems and the, the Frankly, the energy intensity in fossil fuels is 100 times, 50 times higher than, than ordinary batteries. It's very hard to replace fossil fuels currently. It's going to take us a while to figure that out. But in the meantime, we can tackle some of these short-lived climate pollutants and have a major impact uh, on uh, buying time for the harder problems. This is a, a figure uh, from a, a paper by Schumacher et al. that appeared and showed uh, basically how much you can lower temperature. Lando mentioned that it's uh, six-tenths of a degree um, by 2050. Much larger, as you look out on longer time horizons, if you go from a reference or business-as-usual solution, which is the blue curve in this diagram, to the red, lowest red curve where you've taken out um, many of the major short-lived climate pollutants. So this has a very positive impact. And it actually, as I'll show you in a moment, comes with a number of major fringe benefits so this is, this is a win-win-win situation all around. One thing that's important to note and that our, our chapter makes clear, this is an, another, uh, another way of looking at the problem in terms of sea level rise, um, is that you need to start right now. This is a point that Ram made very clearly. We have a narrow window, 25 years or so, in which to really get some traction on this problem. Um, if you delay beyond that, then the impacts of climate change really start to take hold. This is from a, a nice study which looked at the issues of sea level rise and pointed out that if you delay even by 25 years, you've already lost uh, about, 30, about a third of the benefit from starting to tackle these short-lived climate pollutants. But tackling short-lived climate pollutants can not only lower the temperature, shown on the left, it can also reduce sea level rise. And that is a major benefit for the state of California. Other benefits that come from, uh, from reducing short-lived climate pollutants. So as I've mentioned, you reduce the climate forcing. That's shown on the left. You also can reduce uh, human deaths by on the order of millions, on, uh, depending on what time horizon you look at. Very large positive economic benefits measured in the trillions of dollars. 
you offset the loss of uh, tens of millions of tons of food crops. Food does not respond well to high temperatures. And so lowering the short-lived climate pollutants buys you lower climate forcing, buys you better human health outcomes, buys you higher crop yields, buys you actually a more vibrant economy. There's uh, no, there are very few downsides to tackling these pollutants. I won't deal with this in the interest of time and go on to point out that uh, California has actually been a leader in this area. We heard about that this morning. Uh, the figure here is actually from a report that Rom did a couple of years ago uh, for the state, for the uh, California Air Resources Board, pointing out, and, and the, the point of that graph is to show how emissions of carbon and concentrations of carbon have dropped as a function of time, thanks to the dramatic controls that California has introduced. And these, these controls have a very large positive impact, again, for both human health and also for reducing climate forcing. This message has now been taken up um, around the world. So the U.S. is taking action, Norway is taking action, Europe is taking action. We heard about the, the, the positive work that the Climate and Clean Air Coalition is undertaking. Mexico, Mexico, just south of us, is undertaking action. This is fantastic. But we have a major challenge in front of us, and it's really aiming for zero emissions. We have to get to zero. Since 80, uh, roughly 85% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, this means a complete radical transformation of how we produce energy, how we consume it, how we interact with our natural environment. Uh, and that's the reason why it's actually a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, we heard about the, the greatest generation uh, from the Second World War. I frankly think that we're about to see the next greatest generation undertake this challenge. So with that, let me conclude. We have a major challenge in front of us, thanks to climate change. It's essential to bend the curve now. Conventional barriers to action can be uh, overcome by really concerted action. Fortunately, a lot of it coming from bottom-up coalitions, such as the one we're talking about forming. And those this, this transformations will be beneficial not only to us and to the generations yet to come, but for our society and our natural environment. I thank you so much, and I look forward to the rest of this meeting. Thank you, Bill. We have time uh, for questions. Yes, Nancy. Um, Bill, you pointed out that California... There should be... Excuse me, Nancy. There should be roving mics. Do we have those? <laughs> if, if not, I'll repeat the question. So, I, um, you pointed out that California has made some big progress in, mm -hmm. in least black carbon. In terms of the other short-lived climate pollutants, mm -hmm. how much more can California do, and how significant would it be just uniquely mm -hmm. to California beyond the globe? So the question was, what can California do beyond black carbon? And I'm happy to say that Governor Brown has put together a comprehensive plan that deals with uh, several of the other short-lived pollutants, including methane. Um, and so the state is taking, uh, taking quick action and, and actually has plans to reduce methane emissions. By, I've forgotten the exact number. Someone here would know. But it's in the tens of percent on a very short time horizon. So the state is now moving its attention to other short-lived pollutants. Thank you very much for that interesting talk. You mentioned that replacing hydrocarbon fuels was a much harder problem. Mm -hmm. What makes that a much harder problem? Well, the, the, the issue is energy density. Um, so you think about launching an airplane. A 747 on takeoff has 40, 400,000 pounds of fuel on it. 
And it's very hard using conventional technology to, to get an, uh, an, an equivalent amount of energy density loaded into the wings of a 747. So uh, air, uh, aviation is one place where that energy density is absolutely critical. Fortunately, there are a lot of other th uh, places where that energy is not so critical. And we had the pleasure of riding down here this morning in an electric bus. Ground transportation is one place where it's, you don't need uh, high energy density because you're not trying to, at least uh, conventionally, not when you're operating a ground-based vehicle, you're not trying to take off. So that's a good thing. But yeah, that's, it's the energy density. You're essentially using a legacy, you know, uh, legacy investment of nature in producing a really phenomenally concentrated form of solar energy that's been converted to chemical potential energy. Um, we just need to figure out how to replace that and how to store it. It's doable, but it's hard. I have a question for you, Bill, regarding the uh, uh, not just the action on the short-lived uh, climate pollutants, but mm -hmm. probably also the larger carbon issue. If we look at the uh, Montreal Protocol, which dealt with the uh, emission of refrigerants and aerosol sprays, that was a very successful mm -hmm. undertaking in terms yes. of, of the action that mm -hmm. resulted. And, and I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I understand that, that the involvement of industry at that time was crucial to that success. That is, they were at the negotiating table, and companies such as Dow Chemical were developing alternative products in parallel with this. What's the prospect for repeating the success of that with regard to, say, the short-lived climate pollutants? So the, um, in many cases... In many cases, the, the, there's no particular um, reason why industry couldn't tackle, for example, the, the soot issue. I mean, soot is, is sort of a, it's, um, it's an inadvertent product of combustion, of diesel combustion. It's actually, as I understand it, not that difficult to remove from the waste stream for, from combustion. And the, uh, the, the question then is, why would industry be interested in undertaking this? How, how does it help their business model? Um, let's take methane as an example. Uh, all the methane that's being leaked from, uh, from transmission systems and from systems that are removing it from the ground is, waste, is wasted dollars. So industry has a direct incentive to reduce leaks from uh, fossil, from, uh, particularly from natural gas systems. So there, uh, you incentivize them, and maybe they'll, they'll go tackle the problem. Currently, we have an issue with methane in the United States. The, the concentrations that we measure at ground level are several times higher than what EPA thought using their, their analysis. So it's clear that we have a lot of inadvertent emission, uh, emission of methane, and that's got to be brought under control. Okay. We have time for just one last question. Yes, in the back. Hi, so uh, you mentioned that California contributes about 1% of mm -hmm. the global emissions, and I'm wondering um, if we can historicize that a little bit, if we have an idea of what our historical contribution has been to this, because that seems like part of the urgency that we need to create for moving forward is that we may be partially responsible for something a little more. That's right. So you're asking actually about sort of the, the carbon commitment from the developed world. Is that, I mean, we can talk about California... But uh, the, the carbon commitment from the developed world is really the, um, the, you know, one of the central sticking points uh, behind reaching a, a negotiation. You know, the tricky thing, I was just talking to Ray Weiss uh, this morning before we started, and, and the, many of our policies in California are framed around understanding how much we were emitting in 1990. 
it's, it's surprising how poor the data is, so I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to give you a direct answer. There are estimates, um, but the, the point that Ray was making and with which I agree is that we now meet, need to move into a mode where we are actively and constantly monitoring the climate system with much greater fidelity than we're currently doing. And this means really carefully tracking the concentration of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. We actually have, we, we don't have great information about, um, about California's contributions back in 1990. Um, we, can, we can guess, probably to a leading, leading order, uh, but we don't have good data. And that's, that's true more broadly. Okay, let's thank Bill once again for a very stimulating talk. So I think you can see that um, uh, from the comments made by Bill and others that this is a multi-dimensional challenge for us. And what we're going to do now is going to look at some of the other dimensions that go beyond just the climate science, uh, which has been so wonderfully uh, summarized by Bill. Uh, there are regulatory policy issues, economic issues, technology issues, communication issues, health issues. And so next we're going to hear um, about the policy and regulatory issues, and Julian Allison from UC Riverside is going to make that presentation. Thank you all for taking the day to come out and uh, hear about some issues and some solutions that are among the most pressing, I think, that our state faces as well as the nation and, uh, and the world. I was lucky to participate with a wonderful group of um, scholars throughout the UCs focused on policies and law and uh, local and uh, regional um, policymaking, transportation planning, and uh, there are volumes that could be said on policy and law. So what I've been charged with doing by our group is telling you about some of the highlights or some of the key um, takeaways from our exercise in reviewing all the, the law and policy at the multi-levels uh, multi uh, within California. So uh, we had a wonderful lead-up by Bill, thank you, uh, who pointed out that California's actually done a wonderful job uh, with respect to having to respond to the issues that we faced here in the state. Uh, we began with climate change uh, moving into energy conservation Policies and these were wonderful lead-ups to actually tackle climate change when that became an issue. And again, echoing Bill uh, to our folks on the, on the balcony, uh, the young people today have lived in a world where there's always been climate change, and uh, many of them uh, don't realize that. Um, so they take for granted some of the things that may have been difficult for others to adopt to adopt new technologies, lower emissions, uh, changes in the kinds of transportation available. They've grown up perhaps not knowing about all the science and all the dangers, but they've grown up living in a world where some of the solutions have been in place. So that can be a very good, a very good thing. Um, we have, as a state, taken advantage of scientific, social, uh, technological um, developments as they've arisen. And uh, we, lead the, uh, we lead the nation as well as the world in terms of the progress that we've made. Uh, California is known as a major economy. 
Um, we are among the biggest in the world in terms of our energy use. We're 20th in the world, uh, roughly. So we're up there at the size of a nation. So in terms of thinking about what California could promise for other places or what kind of uh, example we could provide, we're, we're very well positioned um, in that sense. And in terms of our ability to respond, we're up there with France and Germany in terms of responding. And a lot of folks know these places as being clean and efficient. California's right there. Again, part of this has been our ability to respond, but another part of it is we're lucky. We're really lucky. California is uh, on the coast. We have a lovely climate, which hasn't required quite as much heating and cooling as some other places have. Um, we've developed a high-end service economy, which hasn't produced as much of the dirty sorts of pollutants that other parts of the world have. We're relative, relatively affluent compared to not just other states, but the rest of the world. Yes, we do have environmental justice. We do have areas of poverty uh, that we do need to tend to. But on the whole, we're relatively affluent and well-placed. And politically, we're left-leaning, which hasn't hurt. So even though I'm going to talk about law and regulation, we have to keep in mind that uh, California has been lucky in a number of ways that might not be replicable across uh, the nation as well as, as, well as the world. Uh, in terms of climate change, of course, uh, AB 32, the Global Warming Solution Act, uh, is the thing that put us on the map in that area, the first state, uh, the first place in the world to really take this seriously and begin to move in that direction. Um, as has already been mentioned, we need to come down to 1990 levels, which we don't necessarily know precisely what those are, and we need to do that quickly and looking forward, we need to continue to reduce moving through 2030, 2050. Getting there, again, built on this widespread movement of air and then energy quality beginning back in the 1960s. So certainly well before many of our students, well, all of our students were, were born, but before many of the faculty teaching today were born. Uh, many of the people in this room, we weren't here when some of these things um, began. And uh, California has long been known as the heart of where diffusion has come from in terms of moving these policies across the nation. So California set, set a very high bar, which then began, which set an example for states wanting to do their own thing or take their own initiative. And by the time the federal government took it up, it was like a really good bargaining chip. We'd already done it. Um, it's very difficult to move someone once they've already invested, whether it's a technological change, it's an emissions limit, um, it's a particular strategy, we could say pretty firmly, this is what we're doing. Uh, and then because it was working, it was taken up. And in a number of cases, the federal law began to um, look a lot like California's law. And in the cases where ours was more stringent, the federal law would allow those more stringent policies uh, to uh, persist. Um, again, because this has been a long trend, we did start out with what some people call old school command and control sorts of, um, of uh, policies or regulatory actions, moving increasingly into uh, more market-oriented strategies. Many of those got off to a rocky start, uh, beginning to prove that they do work, but the key, as uh, we went back and forth with our chapter, is simply pricing the carbon or pricing the effluent, pricing what that is appropriately. Sometimes precisely how you get there may matter less, and it's possible that some of our earlier strategies in California 
um, might be the ones that are more useful to places just starting out, as opposed to jumping to ways that, are, that we now know are very efficient. We have to think that that didn't happen on its own. It happened because we'd already taken the intermediary, intermediary steps. Um, another a key point of California policy is that even though we are a state which we already think about as being subnational, uh, California has very consciously looked at the levels of even further subnational policy and begun to look at the efforts that cities can take, um, the roles that individuals take, and the kinds of incentives that are necessary there, and then most recently in terms of seriously looking at regions. Um, my training was initially in global uh, environmental policy, global air quality, but I've spent probably the last 15, 20 years looking more at regions and at, uh, and at the state. And uh, one of the things that drew me to looking at the regions is that's, that, the, the, that what happens on the ground, changing people's behavior and their attitudes, is a local matter. Yes, you have state policy and federal policy, but the things that really impact them are what's happening often at municipals, municipalities, and in their cities. And uh, there are a lot of gaps there. California is a big place, and there's a lot of places where cities don't completely reach a lot of unincorporated areas. And regions help out a lot immediately with those areas, as well as drawing uh, the cities together and to begin to coordinate uh, their behavior, because certainly if one city changes and becomes cleaner, uh, their abilities to maintain that level of uh, pollution reduction or energy efficiency is going to be impeded by what the others are doing around them. So regions have been very, very important. Uh, with, uh, the global with the uh, climate change policy, we move from sort of an AB32 to begin to look at land use and transportation policy and to look at it as a whole just the way that regions had already been doing. So there were some of the most proactive regions had already come together and were uh, moving in that direction. I live in Riverside County, and it was one of the first to bring habitat and transportation land use planning uh, together. And that's the direction that your regions have moved in uh, California. That's produced some political tensions between the regions and the cities. Cities typically do land use planning, regions typically do transportation, and we've had to blur those edges a little bit, forced a bit more cooperation that some, that, uh, than some folks are used to. That's beginning to move in the right direction. Now all of the regions have come online with appropriate regional plans that take into account um, the prov uh, provisions for creating uh, sustainable communities. So Definitely moving in the, great, in the right direction, but it's difficult. There are hiccups um, along the way. In addition to the levels of governance, we also have overlapping jurisdictions having to do with the various agencies that might be involved. So everything from development agencies to health agencies to your air quality, water, and energy and transportation agencies can also become involved. Some of those work very, very well with some of the more governance-oriented organizations. Some do not. So again, you have some amount of tension, and you have some places that have moved way ahead, places in uh, Northern California in particular. Um, San Diego's all been, already been um, noted as being an area that is moving ahead. So we're still struggling at some of these things, but definitely ahead of the curve in terms of looking nationally. And... Uh, and internationally. Uh, 
Another point, just as sort of keeping in mind that the things that California has been able to do, we've been able to do in part because of some gifts of location and politics and such. Likewise, the, the uh, success of the regional and the city efforts have happened in part because cities were already, in some cases, moving in that direction. We already had green city initiatives. We already had bottom-up efforts from communities um, moving their cities and their um, even parts of cities, neighborhoods in some cases, into places that were positioned, if not uh, with not in terms of global warming, definitely in terms of energy efficiency and air quality. So again, positioned very well for when these things were brought together and put on uh, and put on the agenda in terms of uh, global warming. Um, with that in mind, we did come up with sort of some things that we think are really important in terms of maybe lessons, uh, given that background. And so one is the importance of geographically, socially, and technologically specific uh, policies. That whatever it is that you're trying to change or to move in the direction of um, of uh, adapting to climate change, we really have to think carefully about the sort of people that are involved, the sorts of governance that maybe already works for them, the levels of technology that they're using and might be able to move to um, most quickly. Um, that that is very uh, important. A couple of things in terms of California, again, looking both at the state uh, and then looking at um, cities or more micro levels and thinking, again, regions at both levels because at the state level, if you think about energy, we're on a western grid, which is itself a region of the United States. At the municipal level, we think in terms of regions that more or less map onto counties. So region can be taken in a number of ways. But in California, we were smart to do things that looked uh, like look at your high-profile sectors first, to look at utilities um, in, in, uh, in particular, and to think about what are the changes that they can make quickly that will be exemplary and will sort of move large numbers of people quickly. So one of the things that we talk about in our chapter, chapter uh, were our efforts to decouple the rates from energy production, um, allowing utilities to begin to recover costs from energy savings. So again, both Ram and Bill have mentioned that although there's this presumption that trying to be more green is expensive, that hasn't necessarily been the cost, uh, has, hasn't been the case in California. We've actually been able to move ahead uh, despite um, these costs. And then likewise, the same kind of ta targeting in terms of, again, looking at the folks who have to make the decisions. So looking at rebates and subsidies, kinds of targets that are very narrowly focused, that you can get some folks on board very quickly that take advantage of these initiatives and can produce early lasting uh, results. So things like the rebates for solar panels, um, some of the rebates that were in place for moving to the more fuel efficient um, technologies and automobiles, um, different kinds of incentives that can be available for using public transportation or moving to transfer, uh, transportation oriented developments. Those things are going to target some people who are going to jump on it and begin to make, uh, become um, examples, examples for others. Uh, another thing that we noticed in terms of looking at the progression of uh, policies in California historically is that we need to design policies that are with the intention that they're going to die, um, that they have a life cycle. 
and build in places where we have openings to um, develop um, and to change. So things that we could put into policies, ways to come back to them, not just as an evaluative uh, form, but that we are saying we're always going to, to adopt the new technology. Then it's already in policy that you're constantly looking for that new technology and you're positioned to bring it online uh, when it's when uh, when it's possible. Likewise, with um, with standards, you can achieve them by having a series of rebates. The rebates are in themselves sort of designed to die. Once we've reached that standard, we can set the standard higher and recycle that um, approach. But to think about that from from the very beginning. Uh, in line with all of this is to think about mainstreaming climate mitigation. I also study uh, gender. And uh, we always talk about gender mainstreaming. So we need to be sort of climate change mainstreaming. Every decision that's made needs to be made with that climate change uh, in position, from our educational decisions to technological uh, decisions um, about adopting technologies or developing them, um, to the kinds of uh, policy options that we're looking at and in other policy areas. So outside of the standard transportation energy uh, air quality aid, uh, areas, if we're looking at low-income housing, we should be thinking about climate change. If we're looking at um, a new, uh, we're, we're going to um, develop new health policy, we should be thinking about um, climate change. It should be there present at, at all times. Um, and then carrying it through some of this to these ideas, uh, one of the things that came back again and again, and it's already mentioned again in here, are the environmental justice concerns. Many of the discrepancies across uh, regions, across areas within the state, uh, will often find pockets of, of poverty being aligned with places where it's the dirtiest and most polluting. And we all know the number of reasons why that happens. So special attention needs to be uh, made in terms of looking at these places and keeping them in mind. Within California policy, we are continually uh, looking at that more carefully and providing for funding that might um, come from a particular policy that some of this is put aside to address concerns um, in those areas. And so um, one of the things that we were looking at is that you know, in, in things like the transportation area and air quality, uh, which is about 37% of the problem uh, in California, um, some of the things that are available, for instance, to students, you know, which students are fairly poor, but they're a lot richer than some of the very poor people in our communities, and many students have free passes for the buses but some of our disadvantaged people don't, and that's the only source of transportation that they have. So it's beginning to think through all of these things that it might not be throwing a whole bunch of money to green up a particular area or a particular neighborhood. Maybe it's making some of the things that are accessible to everybody else more accessible uh, to, these, um, to, these less advantaged, uh, to these less advantaged people. Likewise, things like energy, um, access, lighting, heating, etc. Um, uh, I recently did some work on environmental justice around the world, not at the time realizing some of the problems that I would find were present as well in my own city, in my own neighborhoods, but looking at the, what the cost of energy does to people. And uh, students are pretty, this particular, one of the studies I looked at was uh, students and how students will save money on energy, heating and cooling by spending a lot of their time in places where it's free. 
right? So they'll spend the whole day out, let's say, in a Starbucks or something uh, to take advantage of that. Well, you know, I was sort of thinking, well, this is like in really poor places, and this is something that cagey students, you know, I have to use their computers all day or something. But it's not. When we looked a little more carefully, even in our own neighborhoods, we were seeing the same sorts of things going on, that we do have neighborhoods, even in relatively affluent uh, California, where people do this as a strategy, try not to use their lights, try to turn things off, know all the places where they can use um, Wi-Fi or where the free computers are. And, um, you know, that might be something you think, okay, well, adults kind of have to, you know, they're, they're, being, they're, they're being smart, they're figuring this out. But when you find out that the pipeline to the UCs and the Cal States out of our public schools are full of kids who are also playing this game, because their parents can't afford to keep the house um, heated or can't afford to run the, uh, the appliances so that they have um, food uh, and, uh, and fresh food, that you begin to think that there are some things that we can make, that we can be thinking about as we put our policies together from the ground out, that no one, regardless of race, color, national origin, income, should be subject to the, the you know, disproportionate share of the environmental effects. We've looked at that, but we need to be looking at everyone in the state, likewise the nation and the world, should have access to cleaner, less expensive transit and sources of energy. That's just as much a part of adapting to climate change as some of the bigger things that we're looking at. And just to wind up um, just a few other things. With these things in mind, we need to be thinking about developing stable coalitions over time so that we can move um, our policies in that direction. And I know that, a data, that data has come up before. Uh, many of the UCs are involved in projects where they're beginning to model and beginning to try to pull the different strains, social, political, economic, uh, et cetera, together to, to model, but more and more we find that even if a lot of data is available, I mean, it's the age of big data, it may not be parsed out in the way that it needs to be. For some of the micro decisions that need to be made, you need, you know, sort of neighborhood and street level data that might only be available at a higher, uh, at a higher level of aggregation. And so there are still very fundamental, re you know, basic research initiatives um, that are very important to moving us forward and improving the policies we have and making it possible for us to uh, serve as a model for the nation and the world. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned the fact that California is uh, left-leaning. Uh, I've actually got my anti-Coke socks on today, talking about <laughs> left-leaning. These have no lycra in them. Uh, <laughs> you get that? <laughs> okay. Um, let's take a couple of simple questions. Uh, yes. Uh, wait till we get the microphone to you, please. So, uh, Dan Kam in UC Berkeley. So I really appreciated hearing kind of the range of thoughts about how to integrate in the environmental justice angle. And I was wondering, in terms of the legal aspects, I mean, people mm -hmm. often talk about the executive order President Clinton signed, but are there specific aspects of California regulations that have scaled? And I say this as a Chapter 4 author, where we think about how to integrate the scaling aspects. So I'm wondering, is there a, a back and forth there that where we've learned from the federal and they've learned from us on, on particularly on the EJ topic around energy and water? In, in our research, in our coming together, we didn't see a lot specifically on environmental justice, except the incre increasing attention to awareness that some disadvantaged communities get hit over the head with all of it. 
that we do see this concentration. And the fact that that concentration exists and it's being looked at is certainly important. We did see a lot of going back and forth maybe late 70s through the 80s between the federal government and California in terms of this jockeying back and forth about whose policy was the best and how is, how is the Clean Air Act going to develop. And once we hit 1990, you kind of had a settling down. And of course, there were EJ discussions in that. But we didn't see anything specific about California offering a particular procedure to the federal government or vice versa. Hi, Jack Brower from UC Irvine. Um, the policies that have been almost emulated around the world uh, that come from California are primarily associated with criteria pollutant emissions. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you mentioned the California Air Resources Board, one of the most successful agencies ever, and then the AQMDs right. throughout the state. And, and literally, these are emulated around the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can we do the same with climate, and can we include, of course, all of these criteria pollutant emissions in this climate discussion? And we've seen many places where the synergies exist, right? Reducing black carbon mm -hmm. is, of course, a criteria pollutant, but also then has a big climate forcing mm -hmm. function. And yet, when you talk to ARB, it's very difficult to integrate those two, right? So I'm thinking about integrated policies that would include criteria pollutants and greenhouse gases? Well, anything is possible. Uh, but again, it has a, a lot of it has to do with the, the history and how we got here. So you, know, you started with a basket of criteria pollutants. And uh, that whole story in itself about how those came about and how we moved is, is, is fascinating. Uh, but we had policies that did. And, and you sort of begin to layer. It's almost like that's kind of taken care of. And we've handled that in a particular way. And we've developed the way that we do that. And now this new thing comes along, and we're going to tackle that. And the fact that we've already handled the criteria pollutants, which have evolved, are, are, are the way we've treated that has, has evolved, that becomes the basis for moving forward. I don't know that we could sort of at this point go back and say we're going to tack on a whole line of, of new things. The fit wouldn't necessarily be there. But going forward, when we begin to look at um, the newer sets of pollutants, they are looking, be, I mean, they are looked at sort of as this list, and we're going to have to deal with them. And how can we modify, for instance, um, AB 32 to extend to these, to these new um, pollutants that we want to look at? So certainly those things are going on, but you are both helped and hindered by the history of the regulations and who has jurisdictional authority to, um, to, uh, to implement them and uh, assess their, you know, sort of assess their implementation. Okay, thank you, Julian. Next. Okay, next um, we're going to look at the economic considerations, which, uh, as we all know, are of paramount importance. Um, we know there'll be some additional costs, but we need to manage that in the best possible way. And to address that, we have uh, Maximilian Offhammer from UC Berkeley. All right, uh, thank you very much for having me here. I hope this doesn't say 10 minutes, it should say 20 minutes, because there's no way I can get through all these slides in 10. 
Uh, thank you, Ram, for, for inviting me back. There are very few people when they call you say no to. It, it's mom. And uh, when Ram calls, uh, the same thing applies. When I was in graduate school here, everybody told me to run away from interdisciplinarity because you, you, you'll never get tenure. Ram told me the exact opposite, and it worked very well. So I, I owe him a large part of my, my career. Uh, this was a true pleasure working on this particular chapter. Uh, it was a team of environmental and energy economics uh, throughout the UC system, which has been really well uh, integrated really well already through a generous grant from UCOP a couple of years ago, which allowed for integration of faculty and graduate students. So uh, there are fewer informational barriers, and the work shows for it. The UC system certainly has the greatest, uh, what do you say, baseball bullpen of environmental uh, and energy economists in the world of any university system. Uh, Whenever I talk about climate change solutions, and they brought a German environmental economist to tell you about this issue, so get ready for some excitement. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really divisive issue, the newspapers say. Whenever I open the New York Times, oh, there's all these sides. To me, the issue is really simple. If we don't do anything about these issues, we're directly taking welfare away from future generations. Uh, another word for this is theft. It's intergenerational theft, but I don't care what aisle, uh, side of the aisle you sit on. Nobody likes theft, right? So that was sort of my, uh, to get you, get you engaged. And now we get to the text-heavy, boring slides. Use me to click. Here we go. Uh, even Milton Friedman. Uh, probably. He was my neighbor in San Francisco, much nicer apartment than mine, uh, would agree that markets sometimes do fail. Uh, so we teach how markets work in undergraduate economics classes uh, to thousands and thousands of undergraduates every year. But in order to get the nice predictions of how markets do well and maximize social, uh, social welfare, we make some really stringent assumptions. So I'm not going to give you a full economics lesson here, uh, but I'm just going to extract the ones that really are salient to the, the climate issue. So there are three markets failure, market failures that really matter here. The first one is the, the big one here. It's the mitigation one. It's the emissions one. We're currently using the atmosphere in most parts of the world as a free dumping ground for greenhouse gas emissions. This is another word of saying you're simply not paying for the full cost of or full damages of the gallon of gasoline you burn or the ton of coal you combust. So there's a pricing distortion here where uh, fossil fuels are simply too cheap. They should be more expensive since you should be paying for the full cost of using those fossil fuels. This is market failure number one. And what this will lead to, and this is Econ 101, will be an overconsumption of fossil fuels, which you know I don't need to point back to Bill Collins' graph or, or Ram's graphs from earlier. We have certainly seen so far. There are two other market failures that are significant in this particular area of inquiry. The next one is innovation. California is the state of innovation. I live 20 miles north of Silicon Valley. Uh, everybody drives a Tesla uh, and has Apple watches and all kinds of stuff. But California is a hotbed of innovation in many, many sectors. The other thing we teach undergraduates is 
if you invent something and you can't prevent others from you know, replicating what it is you're doing uh, and others steal some of your rents and profits, you will not invest as much as you should in innovation. So one issue here is if we're thinking about low carbon technologies or innovative solutions to the climate problems, uh, from the private sector perspective and uh, the public perspective here, we don't see enough investment in these technologies. For some of them, that's certainly not true, the smaller ones. But if you're thinking about bigger technologies where a single experiment can cost a billion or two billion, I'm thinking of carbon sequestration and storage, for any individual firm, except for maybe Apple has that kind of war chest, uh, it's not something a, a firm would engage in. So the public sector usually steps in and provides that public good. Market failure number three, and this gets a little bit technical, and I'll make a nice weight loss analogy right before lunch uh, to keep you uh, away from the dessert tables. Uh, market failure number three is when an individual country abates emission, meaning reduces its emissions, everybody benefits from it. What that, of course, means is there will be free riders, right? I engage, or the Germans, I'm German, did I mention that? Uh, the Germans have engaged in a tremendous amount of emissions reductions and environmental policy. When it comes to climate change, everybody stands to gain those benefits. Again, basic economic theory tells you if there's a free rider problem, which is inherent in a public goods setting, uh, people will underprovide public goods. What this means, we get too few commitments towards emissions abatement, which is certainly what we've seen uh, coming out of Kyoto, and I will argue we are running the danger of coming out of Paris uh, with as well. All right, so let me uh, give you a brief uh, overview, just sort of three minutes, well, maybe even two minutes, of how we regulate emissions, uh, and then let me give you the six recommendations that came from our chapter, uh, the economics chapter, which actually led to a really lively debate with engineers and chemists and, and all kinds of people I didn't even know were in the UC system, uh, and now I do, which was an, an ancillary benefit. So there are two ways of regulating uh, emissions. If you want to reduce emissions, you can either use a stick or you can use a carrot. A stick, uh, the types of policies we're talking about here are so-called command and control policies. So you can think of emission standards. You tell individual firms or sectors, this is how much you get to emit, and that's it. It's like telling your kid at dinner, you're going to eat those carrots, and that's it. Right? So command and control. You can also tell firms what they should use to produce their goods and services. Low-carbon uh, low fuels is one way of doing that, or you, you know, out, outlaw coal and switch towards natural gas and other low- or no-carbon uh, sources of fuel. And then there are, of course, the regulator's favorites, technical standards, where you tell a firm what type of technology the firm has to use in order to produce its goods. Uh, anybody here from the private sector? Raise your hands. How much do you like to be told what technology to use? Not very much, right, generally. But uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Incentive-based regulations are, of course, economists' favorite. Uh, Incentive-based regulations mean you set, you correct the incentives in a way, those are usually monetary, in a way that the individual firm will do uh, what's optimal in order to meet the target that you've set yourself could be an emissions target or something like that. But you let the firm choose how they meet that goal. They get to choose the technology. There's flexible mechanisms for trading, for example. So one way of doing that are emissions taxes. We slap a tax on each ton of carbon 
and you let firms decide how to you know, choose their particular fuel they want to use. If coal all of a sudden is too expensive, they switch to natural gas. That tax, in theory, should be equivalent to roughly the amount of external damage that ton of coal or that ton of carbon does to the global environment. Notice the word global, not local. Uh, cap and trade is another incentive-based uh, scheme. Here in California, of course, we have uh, one of the largest functioning cap and trade systems in the world, uh, where you simply say, we as California, for a set of sectors, only allow for the emission of a certain number of greenhouse gases. So you specify the number of tons. You issue rights to pollute. So if you want to pollute, you have to hold a permit. right? And then you let individual firms trade these permits. The benefit of this is, if it's really expensive for you to reduce emissions and it's cheap for somebody else, you just might buy a permit from somebody else and that other firm reduces its emissions more cheaply. There are, of course, ethical concerns with this because should we be issuing rights to pollute is always a big question here. But what both a tax and a cap-and-trade system do, uh, they will achieve emissions reductions uh, at least cost. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. The third incentive-based regulation here is, well, we know some technologies that are uh, carbon-free or low-carbon, right? So maybe we want to incentivize those types of technologies. As of tomorrow, I will have functioning solar panels on my roof. Why did I decide to get solar panels on my roof? Uh, there's a giant 30% income tax write-off, plus I will be also green and electricity will be funneled into my plug-in hybrid directly uh, from the sun. So the notion here is regulators can pick technologies that they think should be scaled up and issue monetary incentives for individuals to adopt these. The thing we have to remember here with subsidies, those dollars don't just come out of a printing press. They have to come from somewhere. They usually come from income tax revenue and then re get redistributed towards these technologies. So Let's get through some of the, the recommendations here, and then we can have a lively debate about how economists have it all wrong or all right. I, I, there's no middle ground ever. The rooms are always divided. Uh, but one thing economists do is when we think about whether a policy is good or not, we're worrying about three aspects here, and two of which economists are generally pretty good about saying something about. The third one, uh, Governor Brown would probably have a really lively debate with us up here since he likes to talk about Rawls and you know, Bentham and, and folks like that. But let's go in order here. Uh, cost effectiveness simply means if you want to reduce a ton of carbon, a ton of emissions, you should do it at least cost, right? Why achieve a certain goal not at least cost is one question we often ask. But just because a solution is least cost doesn't necessarily mean it's good policy. So economists layer on top this notion of efficiency, where a policy is efficient if it maximizes the difference between benefits and costs. If costs are greater than benefits, it's usually not a good policy. If benefits are greater than costs, uh, it's a good policy. And this is built into federal rulemaking and state-level rulemaking as well. So lots of economists do lots of free consulting for uh, the federal government, helping them calculate these benefit-cost ratios. Uh, this is where the social cost of carbon comes in. The White House has issued a, an interagency working group report that calculates what is the damage from one additional ton of carbon. And that 
number is being used in, I believe, about 70 federal rulemakings so far in these benefit-cost calculations. So climate change is moving into that territory. The third thing we worry about is equity, and this is frankly where economists aren't great. There are some economists that are great, but when we worry about who suffers the consequences from unabated climate change and who suffers the consequences from climate policy, uh, how should we decide what's good and bad policy is a question here. Right? Should everybody's welfare be valued equally? Uh, should we worry about the well-being of the least well-off individual in society? So there are a number of ways of thinking about the equity implications of climate policy, and that's where I think, going forward, we can do a lot more thinking and involve uh, folks who are certainly not economists but are in, in, in philosophy departments and, and political science departments, for example. So let's get to some recommendations. Again, I'm not speaking here for the entire uh, Bending the Curve author team. This is just the author team of the chapter we were on. But this is what we as economists and all the authors were economists on this chapter agreed on. The first goal we should want to worry about here is that the goal of policy should be to reduce the damages caused by greenhouse gases. Right? That's the goal. There is an environmental problem that will result in damages by people or, and plants and frogs uh, worldwide. Uh, so we should focus on minimizing the damages. Why do I even have to say that? Well, in the discussion, when you look at the policy solutions going forward, everybody has their favorite technology, right? We should reduce fuels by 50%. We should put low-carbon fuels into the fuel supply. We should pick solar panels, we should pick uh, CCS, whatever it is you want. But when we think about going forward with meaningful climate policy, we should always remember that the target here is to minimize damages, not to roll out our favorite uh, technology. Because frankly, it just puts blinders on you. And blinders, unless you're a horse in 18th century Vienna, are not a good thing, all right? Uh, well, and I'm going to make it explicit here, too, that we've been worried very much about mitigation at this point, uh, you know, reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases. But when you're worried about the quanti quantifying future damages, it's not just mitigation. It's adaptation, too. This is a joint problem now. There is so much climate change baked in already uh, that my seven-year-old is going, certainly going to live through, that we have to look at the problem as a joint problem, a mitigation and adaptation problem, not just uh, emissions reductions. So this is, of course, I lose my membership card in the American Economic Association if I don't say this, all right? Uh, economists would always agree that incentive-based instruments are preferable to sort of con command and control technologies. We really like our carbon taxes. We really like our cap-and-trade systems. So Ram and I had a very nice, uh, lengthy phone conversation about this. It wasn't an argument, uh, but, but I, 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 it was a good... Yeah, it was an argument. Uh, <laughs> but as always, Rob won, right? So, so, so that was easy. But when we think about going forward with these amazing market-based instruments, so if you sit in your ivory tower, you have your window open, the air is clean, and the sun is shining, and you live in the land of theory, uh, yes, all of these things work very, very well. But uh, as you may have heard, China has announced that it will roll out a, a national level cap and trade system very soon, which is an amazing achievement, right? That China has agreed to doing something about aggregate emissions. This is amazing. But 
in order for a cap and trade to work, you need to know who's emitting what, right? A cap and trade system and a carbon tax don't really work unless you know how much people are emitting. So in order for these wonderful market-based technologies to really work, what you need is emissions inventories. If you don't have emissions inventories, it's a little bit like going on a diet without a scale, right? You stand in the mirror in the morning, I look good today, right? Uh, but a scale really tells you how much weight you've lost, so emissions inventories allow you to figure out how much your emissions have come down by. So if you just implement these market-based technologies without really giving it the tools, the, these, uh, these uh, policy things, policy things, these policies need to work, you have a beautiful cap-and-trade system on the books, but you know, you're not getting the, the emissions reductions. So there's a big literature in economics now spearheaded by Michael Greenstone and a bunch of others that really focuses on monitoring and, and figuring out how do you make these policies that are on the books work. And there's a lot of uh, theoretical and empirical work going into how to design better market-based policies, which I'm happy to send you papers on. Uh, it gets a little bit nerdy now, and I only have three and a half minutes, so I'm going to go through the next ones pretty quickly. Uh, emissions leakage is a big thing. If in California we regulate climate change and we engage in all these mitigation measures, maybe dirty industries move next door, and all we've got is all of a sudden you know, the same carbon but coming out of an unregulated area. So we, when we as a jurisdiction that does, just doesn't have to be California, that could be more broader than that, we have to deal with the issue of leakage, all right? The issue of leakage, there are methods and lots of economics papers out there that figure out how do you allocate uh, permits and cap and trade systems, for example, to minimize leakage, but this is the big one, right? If the carbon just goes elsewhere, we've done nothing uh, real here. The other thing I would like to argue, if we use command and control type tools, we like command and control type tools. Standards are really nice because there's no price that appears on a website, right? You don't know what it costs firms to reduce their emissions because it's a standard, right? A shiny gadget gets implemented somewhere, but we don't really know what the costs are versus with the cap and trade system, you know exactly what the cost of emissions reductions is because all you have to do is log onto the site and see what the price of permits is. So a lot of these standards here, renewable fuel standards, the low carbon fuel standards and so on, might be really, really costly, so they have to have a cost containment mechanism built in if you have to use these command and control methods. There's a nice thing, and we'll talk about Paris in a second. If we don't get full coverage of mitigation by all countries, right? if we just get the G20 on board or the G40 on board, we're going to have to start talking about border tax adjustments. If we have a climate club of the top 20 emitters, if you don't have a national uh, climate policy and you want to sell into the climate club, you're going to have to pay some form of carbon tax, which the UN folks are going to start getting migraines because this is technically really hard to do, but this is a conversation uh, we need to have. The last one, and this is the, the big one here, is in California, I mean, looking outside, it's gorgeous, right? This was my surf break out here. It's one of the most beautiful spots in the world. We like to worry about California's problems, but this is a global problem. What can California do to solve the global problem? 
Yes, we can do mitigation. If we reduce our emissions by 80%, we've reduced global emissions by 0.8 or 0.7%. It's not that much. But what California is, is a hotbed of innovation. So we need to figure out ways to incentivize innovation in California as both private sector and public sector, I'm talking about the universities, the labs, uh, and you know, all kinds of other research institutions, to help us come up with solutions, technological solutions, whose goal it is to be exportable to the developing world. Right? This is not about making money. There was that big disaster with that pill lately. Uh, this is not about making money, but this is about coming up with solutions that will help the world fix its climate problem. So I'm going to take 30 seconds out of the questions for one second. So we're heading to Paris with a new strategy. It's a little bit like a weight loss meeting. Everybody steps up and says, I agree to lose 20% of my body weight. Substitute body weight with greenhouse gas emissions. If we agree on these goals, we all go home and we try and meet those goals. It is easier to lose weight with a bunch of buddies. We all know that, right? But the issue here, it's still a self-imposed goal. And as somebody who's been trying to shed a few pounds, it's really hard to do. And I don't have a Congress I have to report to. Uh, so I'll leave you with this depressing slide here is how much warming are we going to get by 2100? This is a, a uh, science paper that just came out recently that looks at the current pledges by national uh, governments uh, the 2 degrees C path is at the bottom. The 4.5 degrees C path, which is a horror show, uh, is on top. And 3.5 is roughly where we're headed with the current commitments towards Paris. This is a science paper. This is not official policy. But this is roughly a ballpark estimate of where we are. So I apologize for robbing you of one minute of questions. And I thank you for listening. Thank, thank you, Max, for a wonderful talk. Uh, floor is open for questions. Thank you. I have a question about equity. Um, yes. How do you deal with the problem? Where are you? I'm over here. All right. Sorry. Hand up. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. How do you deal with the problem that in the state of California, uh, a large number of low-income families depend on their cars and trucks for transportation and lacking access to good public transportation, if you put in incentives like higher gasoline taxes or things like that, you'd be putting in effect a highly regressive tax scheme, which is one of the arguments people often use against that particular policy. Great question. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to that point. Let's talk about a $100 carbon tax, right? Nobody is considering a $100 carbon tax except for us in the ivory tower, maybe. $100 carbon tax, if my math is right, is about a dollar tax on fuels, right? Uh, so the notion here is if you're looking at recent variation in gas prices, a dollar is, eh, you know, it, it's up there. So if we're talking about the current $12 permit price, you're talking about $0.12 cents in, in uh, gas prices. There is a, a, a thing written into the policy, apologies to the lawyers, I don't know what the thing is called, but that prescribes uh, that a share of the cap-and-trade revenue be used to help affected communities. So this doesn't, of course, decrease gas prices in those communities, but in theory it should be recycled to those communities in the form of either you know, their state income taxes or in, in, in terms of other ways. So carefully thinking about using these tax revenues uh, and cap-and-trade revenues, and I will not be speaking about trains, uh, 
but really thinking about you know the recycling here, I think would be a, would be a good thing to do. So thank you for that question. Question in the back. Yeah, uh, great t great talk, Max. And this is a meeting about mitigation. And thanks so much for bringing up adaptation. And I'd love to hear any any thoughts you have on how treating adaptation and mitigation together can really strengthen our mitigation. So I think this is a really important question. My my current research agenda focuses on air conditioning because I think it's underappreciated in the in the economics literature. So of course, air conditioning is one of the main adaptation uh, mechanisms for rich people in California. For rich, I, I consider Californians to be rich on average uh, relative to the globe. You know, one of the adaptation mechanisms is going to bend the emissions path upwards is if we get, because, it, you know, San Francisco all of a sudden has the climate of Fresno, San, Francisco's, San Franciscans all of a sudden have air conditioners, they're going to use more energy uh, and there will be more emissions. California, not such a big deal, but if you're thinking about China, India, and places like that, we're all of a sudden talking about really massive increases in, in mitigation. So this is a negative interaction here. The positive interaction here is I'm really happy to see that utility planners and planners in general, both in the public sector and the private sector, are starting to look at some of these maps that, that Bill has put, put together. Bill has put together something called the Climate Readiness Institute in, in the Bay Area together with Stanford and Davis, which focuses on how to help private sector and public sector institutions adapt to the challenge of local climate change. So these adaptation plans aren't something we can talk about globally. These adaptation plans are local. So San Diego area should have one way of looking at it, Bay Area another one, and we have to think about this very much as a local issue versus, yeah, all right. Okay, let's take one, just one, one more question. question uh, Al Swedler, San Diego State University. I'm intrigued by your last comment that one way to really deal with climate change is for California to use its entrepreneurial and innovation economy or energy for products and services that can be used globally. I run a program for the California Energy Commission, mm -hmm. which specifically gives funding, fair amount, for new energy innovation products. And this ties in with the previous speaker. We are compelled only to fund projects which assist California ratepayers and citizens. We cannot even consider, by law, technologies or proposals from outside of California. So we've got a mismatch here. Somehow we've got to combine what you're suggesting, which I think is very important and we really can make a, a contribution, to the mentality that you can only spend state and even federal money that benefits citizens within the jurisdiction. So I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. So the governor is going to be here tomorrow, so that would be a good thing to, to feed the staffers that, that tag along. Uh, the other thing here is, you know, we've spent a lot of money putting a lot of solar panels on a lot of homes in California using rebates uh, as a way to get there, and it worked, right? Uh, Mount Soledad is covered in solar panels. Uh, but thinking about how do we use cap-and-trade revenue and what to do with it, if we accept the current sort of well, you can't use this because there's this rule on the book that doesn't let you solve this problem, then to me the rule is wrong, right? Then we need to think about how do we change rules in order to you know, actually attack a problem instead of accepting the status quo rules that won't let us solve the, the problem at hand. Because innovation is something that would help us attract people uh, 
come to the state, and it's something that we're really good at. So changing rules is, you know, not what government likes, but it, sometimes it's time to do just that. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Max, for wonderful that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.